Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show, made possible by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today, we're joined by a man who didn't just squeeze the lemon dry when it came to his professional basketball career. Yes, he squeezed it, but then he put it in a vice, he bashed it with a mallet, and then he minced it, and he did it again and again. David Anderson last October called time on a career that lasted an astonishing 23 years and netted 22 titles in six countries, and it included four Olympic campaigns. This is a tale of talent, no question, but just as much about resilience, perseverance, and grit. David, welcome, and thanks a lot for donating your time. Thanks. It's good to be on the show, and uh, thanks for the very friend and friendly, kind introduction. 23 years of your 41 years on this earth have been spent as a pro basketballer. Now, we're speaking more or less than three months into your retirement. I can't imagine what a shock to the system this must be. How have you adjusted? Uh, it's been actually not too bad. I mean, in saying that, I know it's 23 years, and over the past, I suppose, five or six, it's been a cushioning blow to uh, retirement. I mean... You kind of just you prepare yourself for it, but you're never prepared for it. So, I mean, it's one of those things you just have to uh, roll with it. And when the time comes, the time comes. And I was fortunate enough to go out on a high with the Melbourne United winning the championship. That's obviously perfect scenario. But, um, yeah, it's, it's never easy. It's kind of like a wise man once told me, you'll die twice as a pro athlete. So, yeah. And it's true. I feel like, you know, you obviously you give up such a great lifestyle. You've got fame. You've got money. You've got you know, fortune, traveling the world, these kind of things. And then you go back to a normal life and that's fine. And I'm comfortable with it. And I've got a lot of things to keep me preoccupied now. The resume honestly has to be seen to be believed. I mentioned the 23 years, the 22 championships slash cups. We mentioned the four Olympic games. Professionally, you played with 13 different clubs across the globe. Now, you weren't one to stay still for long, though, were you? Yeah, I know. It's one of those things as a, you've got to seize the opportunities when you get them. And uh, I was always very fortunate. I found great teams, great teammates along the ways, good coaches, and uh, won a lot of games and won a lot of championships. So it was a hell of a journey, and it took me to many good places and obviously brought a lot of my family and, and friends and support around with me around this journey. So it was a great, great trip. So what an adventure. I mean, even off the court, like when you go through it, all those cultural experiences that you wouldn't have otherwise got. I mean, you played in Italy, Spain, Russia, Turkey, France. You played for three different clubs in the States in the NBA alone. Uh, and the Olympics in Greece, China, England, Brazil. You must look back, I mean, enormously satisfied that you not only got everything out of yourself as an athlete, but you just had, a, I imagine, a bloody good time. Yeah, it's awesome. Some of the places I lived are amazing too. So it was it was a great trip and great journey. And I think, you know, my mum explained it to me once. She said, oh, when I was three months, I think she took me back to England. She's English heritage. And um, unfortunately for her father passing, and I was just a little baby. So she said, you probably caught the travel bug way back then <laughs> when you were just three months old. You didn't even know what was going on and you just ran with it because, yeah, I've travelled to so many parts of the world I never thought I would. Growing up in Frankston, I never thought I'd learn Italian and be able to speak it and experience the cultures I have over there 
if you told me I was going to go play basketball in Russia and, and experience, you know, traveling around that country, you, you just shake your head and go, there's no way. But Such great world experiences. Exactly. It's, I'm fortunate to be able to do that. And I'm also fortunate and, and happy to be able to experience with friends and family. So it's a so, great journey. Amazing. So speaking of the Olympics, I mean, you are very much part of the, as we know, the, the foundation, the platform that, that is the previous generation of players. That made Tokyo possible. So yeah. obviously 65-year crusade to stand on the Olympic podium was finally achieved with a, with a bronze in Japan last year after yeah. being, you know, cruelly denied in the past that you don't need me to remind you of. <laughs> but right. my goodness, it was emotional. Like even re-watching it yesterday, um, Paddy saying the medal's going to be hung up at his mum and dad's house, Andrew Gaze on the coverage. I, for a former player like you were you overwhelmed in that moment oh definitely i saw it on tv and it still brings tingles to my body when i when i see it and i think about it because uh yeah we came so close and you know we did lay foundations talking about culture trying to get everyone working i remember working with gorgian when people were like oh we're in the big lull and we might not even make things and we just chipped away we built a good foundation had great guys built this culture that just carried on through the through the generation and um yeah, it came out, the results were there, and we were watching it from afar. You know, I just felt a part of it, and then for Paddy and some of the guys to say all the nice things about, you know, us building the foundations, et cetera, it was just a, it's the icing on the cake for us. You know, really felt a part of it, part of that family, that boomers culture. A classy bunch, aren't they? I Very mean, they're not there for any other reason other than, you know, 12 guys coming together for, for, for a common goal. And I mean, exactly. for the layman or laywoman watching, it was emotional. I just can't yeah. even imagine what it would have been. It, like. it must and have stirred up some memories. Oh, it definitely does. And it's, a lot of people go, oh, you know, you're pro athletes and stuff. When you play with the boomers, it's not about being a pro or anything. Guys are there usually sacrificing. You usually don't get paid. You get a podium. That's it. Like, you know, and you're there just to put the green and gold on, represent your country and, and do the best for, for all the Australians around the world. And it's fun. Like the guys, yeah. I know the guys talk about it. Oh, you know, you give up your off season. Cause as a pro, you, I used to go like 10 months of the year, 11 months on the grind with the teams in Europe playing, you know, two games a week and it's hard and you're going through injuries and things like that. And then all of a sudden a week after the season ends, you're getting a call from the national team. Oh, come on. Can we meet up? We need a, we got a qualifiers for the Olympics or something. You're like, oh, geez, I'm, my body's still not recovered yet. But then you're like, no, nah, I'll be a part of it and I'll jump on board. So off you go again. So you don't really get a pause or a break. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is hard, but like it's worth it because you, you just, the experiences you have, the traveling and the, obviously the results and the, no better feeling than being at the Olympics and things like that. Oh, truly was one of the great moments of the Games from an Olympic perspective. So we'll revisit the national team a bit later. We'll circle back because its journey and its evolution, you're as qualified as anyone to answer this, has made it one of Australia's most powerful moments because it wasn't always as professional as it is now and the players are very well looked after. So life off the court, you've got a day job now, haven't you, David? What's that? Yes, I do. I've, I've got a few hats I wear. I mean, I do, I've officially started with the NBL and um, doing three days a week with them and helping them out with, with a player cooperation, liaison role, and uh, some special projects. We're trying to involve older guys being around the game, storytelling, trying to get the game back to the where it was pre-COVID. So mm. we really want to grow the sport. It's the most participated sport in Australia, so we feel like it should be right there, you know, top tier. So, so that, that, that as you mentioned, the player liaison officer role, I mean, what does that entail and, and how did it actually come about? Well, just speaking with Larry, I know he's got a lot of commercial guys on his on his exec teams and stuff, like, and he gets a lot of input from that, but he doesn't have many, well, any ex-players really working with him or things like that. So he wanted me to be, come on board and give him a bit of a player's point of view of things. When there's hiccups with players, obviously I can give him some advice in that sense, going around, involving ex-players around the game, getting them involved to storytell, get things going. 
and also for the like you know recruitment side when they're talking about next star next gen and stuff like that so it's just giving them a bit of insight and obviously being a international traveler and mm. having many worldly experiences hopefully up to open the networks and get other international teams to come to Australia and play games as well. You're certainly qualified. You, you might even be overqualified for the job, to be honest. So uh, we're going to talk about your family journey in a moment, but you've got your own family now as well. So I imagine just yes. being a dad and a husband and everything else keeping you busy. Uh, definitely. You know, as a basketballer, obviously you have to be kind of selfish and, and dedicated to your sport and traveling and doing things. And it's it's hard. And obviously my wife and family, they do a great job of managing things. And now I'm around a bit more. I don't know if she's happy about that or whether or not, but it's still, no, it's, it's great. And I've definitely put more time there. And half of the struggle now is scheduling things in and making sure there is time to do everything in the day because when you get people pulling you this way, that way, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, figure out priorities and stuff like that. But definitely enjoying a bit of family time. It's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, and it's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Well, next, we'll trace back over a young David Anderson's journey to the basketball court. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to the highly decorated former basketballer, David Anderson. So, Dave, your father, Danny, is Danish. Your your mum, Mary, you mentioned, is English. How did they meet back in the day? Well, it's an interesting story. They were both on trips, one coming from uh, Perth and one coming from Brisbane. They were both travelling with friends or family from my father, and they uh, met in the middle of a roadhouse in the middle of Australia. (laughs) You know, there's only one once every thousand two thousand k's or whatever and they here they were connected and and um obviously my old man was very impressed with mum and her, her long legs and stuff so he uh he got chatting to her and, and got friendly uh, over a couple of big m's in the roadhouse yes couple of beers and i think it was beers actually back then. right so that's how you get to meet the english women so um no they had fun and obviously dad chased her and, and um they rekindled their everything when they got back to Melbourne and then they went back to Europe for a stint, but then they decided to come back to Australia. And obviously I'm born in Australia, but strong European heritage, but, um, and big family over there. But yeah, it was a interesting, uh, background and obviously start for them. So you're born June 1980 as one of five kids you'd be. Am I right in saying your old man's actually one of 12 back in Denmark? Yes. So that's why I was saying we have a big family. We've got about, there's 140 odd Andersons or, you know, bloodline over there and, and it goes back even further. So, like, you know, it's a big um, big family. The get-togethers over there are quite uh, intense, I think. So I've been to a few – I went to a few Danish Christmases when I was playing in Europe, and they're, they're great events and lots of uh, drinking and having fun and merry times. And that Danish heritage, I mean, you've got a Danish passport, obviously. How helpful was that going back to when you were suiting up with a career that was spent in so many European nations? It was great because that, I don't know if you remember, the European Union came in about 2000, I think it was. So that meant that I became a citizen of the EU and such. So I could work as a local over there, which is big because otherwise it would have been regarded as an import. And then obviously there's restrictions there. So it would actually help me a lot. I went over there when I was 19. So I was very young and and learning the ropes, but um, yeah, it was a it was a great feat, and obviously playing a majority of my career in Europe, it was a it was a great thing to have and to uh, progress me. 
So take us back. The family settles in Frankston, a bit under, for those unaware, a bit under an hour out of Melbourne on the way to the Mornington Peninsula. When and how did your relationship with the game of basketball first start? Well, I mean, probably when I was four or five years old. I have one year older brother, Stewie, who uh, was obviously a year older, and I played with him. His mum was the coach, and I was dragged along to all the training sessions because uh, we had five kids, so I was very uh, time poor. Um so, yeah, I was learning to play against him, getting roughed up by my other brothers in the front driveway, and uh, that's where the love for the game came. And I kept playing all the way through and then eventually went on to play with the Bayside Blues under 12s. Um, and things just flung, got bigger and bigger from there. So I eventually joined the ITC programs with Victoria. They were like, they recognised me, obviously, being very tall and gangly. And- well, just on this, actually, because you, you played the game at, what, 211 centimetres? Would that be your official? 212, 212? Yeah. I always say, yeah. And obviously yeah. topped out 113 kegs, so you're obviously a big man. But were you an early bolter height-wise? Uh, yes, I was always the tallest, like one of the tallest. So, I mean, but I was very skinny. Like, I mean, I'm talking like beanpole skinny. So yep. I used to get roughed up quite a bit, and that probably gave me a bit of a chip on the shoulder and was a good thing. So, but, um, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I was always a tall kid and the one that, you know, trying to play centre and do things. So, And, and just with your mum being time poor, as you can understand, and your older brother, you always played uh, in a level, at a year level above you, didn't you? So you're yes. always, you shouldn't have been there, but you were just because the the way the family, yep. the, that it worked out. That must have hardened you as well. That must have helped you. Definitely helps. Like, I mean, the the roughing up and the playing and, you know, it is hard. And I remember my dad always saying, oh, I used to always hear you because you were a bit of a whinger. You'd come storming in on the summer nights playing at seven at night or whatever it is out in the front driveway. You'd come storming <laughs> in crying, ah, Brett hit me or someone, Stuart hit me or Graham. And then, Two seconds later, you'll be back out there shooting and playing again. And yeah. it's true. You you fall in love with the game there. We had a real fortune. We had a couple of kids around the area that played as well. So we were out there all the time. And, and basketball was just part of our you know upbringing. Every Friday, we played with the Blues. So you mentioned the Frankston Blues, or then the Bayside Blues in your time. You played juniors, but yeah. then you graduate. Speaking of doing things ahead of time, to the seniors, I think when you're only 15. Yeah, 15. 15. And then the AIS and a move to Canberra at what, 16? Yeah, just Jeez. So you were on the conveyor belt nice and early, I mean, the pathway. Yeah, exactly. I was definitely pushed along. I mean, like I said before, we, we I did play with the ITC program, which was, uh, I don't know mm. what they call it now. Um, so they represented the state and things like that. And, um, yeah, playing with the juniors, like as a junior for the blue senior men's team, I learned a lot. I had a coach, one of the Americans took me under his wing, Troy Muhlenberg. He was um, my ITC coach, so the state paid him to train me three times a week, and he taught me things, and he used to take me to training. So here I was, a 15-year-old kid jumping in the back of the car with two American guys and and going to training with a bunch of men, grown men too. And um, it was a real eye-opening experience and probably opened me up to, obviously, how the world will be in the basketball world. And And this is growing up fast, isn't it? Like This isn't your typical childhood then, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, I see some kids these days are 20, still at home, haven't done much, and I'm like, well, when I was 20, I was living in Italy and already won a first championship. But no, it's definitely... I had a, a, a steep learning curve, but, you know, I handled it well and I had good support around me and, and my parents were very good at pushing me along. Mum used to drive me all over Melbourne to do all the trainings and things like that. So it was, uh, it was tough, but it obviously very rewarding. So up at the AIS, um, you've been there for a while. A couple of the US colleges come calling. I think UCLA was one. The U of A Wildcats, I think, might have been another. Were you the academic type? Would that grade point average have been swimming along nicely if you'd taken that route? No, it's funny. You kind of, I'm a bit of a hypocrite like that. I I'm not an education kind of guy. I'd never really studied too hard at school, but fortunately I was um, very good with the basketball. Um, 
But no, I um, yeah, did get chased by a lot of the colleges. I unfortunately didn't go and do any uh, tours or anything like that. And I found out later they're the best fun in the world when you go do them <laughs> tours. But um, yeah, it was more for me. I wanted to turn professional after being at the AIS for a few years. And I did plan to be around Melbourne and, and um, start my pro career in, with the Magic. Yeah, well, you'd settled on the Magic, hadn't you, and Brian Gorgian uh, at mm. the time. Um, then, of course, in the off-season before you were set to join the Magic, there's a huge curveball. Yes. They, they merge. Yes, they merge, and I got squeezed out of the deal. And I know I sp- Gorge still talks about it to this day. Um, you know, <laughs> it was an awkward, very awkward conversation, him having to come down to Frankston and explain to my parents what's happened and blah, blah, blah. But, I mean, you know, things happen for a reason. And and um, as fate had it, I turned around and went up to Wollongong, so with the Hawks. Jeez, what about that, that merger, though? Welcome to the pros, eh? Like, yes. I mean, we're talking about things happening ahead of time. You're still a kid at this point, and you've been squeezed out in a merger that no one could really have anticipated. Barely 18, and, yes, got squeezed out and everything. And it was just uh, it was a bit of a, a wake-up call, but, I mean, it's, it's good. I mean, I went on to Illawarra, and... Built some great relations there, and, and we had a pretty good season. I remember making semi-finals with the team. Unfortunately, I had some injuries that year, so it was adjusting to pro life. But um, it was a it was a great experience, and obviously to, you know, you don't cry over spilt milk. I've never been one to do that. I always just take the hit and move on. So. I did that, and obviously things worked out. You with this is your journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can catch them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. So Dave plays just the 25 games for the Hawks. He wouldn't stay for long, but he doesn't just change clubs as an 18-year-old. He changes continents. That's next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with four-time Olympian David Anderson. So it's Wollongong instead of Melbourne, but that would be nothing, David. You're 18 when you decide to pack up and move your life to Bologna, Italy. How on earth did this come about? <laughs> well, it's obviously part of my background, the heritage, the European passport helped. But um, representing Australia as a junior, obviously you get exposure over there. And my agent was an international guy, so... Um, they came a knock, and first it was actually Benetton Treviso, which was a powerhouse in EuroLeague back then, and then Kinder Bologna eventually offered me a big deal, and and it was something I couldn't turn down. It was a big four year deal. I mean, it was you're talking seven figures of money. And I was just going to say, I, I, this is a very personal question. I mean, I'm I don't know for sure if enough water's gone under the bridge. Can you give us an insight as to the ballpark of what the what the offer would be for you from from a as you say a premier team in the EuroLeague at the, at the time, Kinder Bologna? You're talking about yeah, two million dollars plus, and it's like you know over there they talk in um, cash, so they pay your taxes and look after you, give you an apartment, all that stuff. So it's hard to a, say no to that. Yeah, exactly, and. Um, yeah, obviously the Hawks were disappointed. They, Brendan was very uh, hurt by me leaving and stuff. But, you know, opportunities, you got to seize them. And I've always been a man of doing that. And obviously I said, no, I'm going to go try this out. And fortunately it worked out really well. It was, Europe, like I said, they were a European powerhouse. Kinder Bologna from Bologna, obviously, is uh, one of the best. And they had one of the biggest budgets in Europe. And, um, yeah, for me to go over there and do that was it was pretty unheard of. And it was daunting. I was 18 years old. 
didn't really couldn't speak Italian, even though I studied it when I was in high school. I never paid any attention. In one ear and out the other. Yes, exactly. But yeah, fast forward, I get to go to Italy, experience it. I brought my brother along with me, Stuart, who was one year older. He actually signed on board with me and the team <laughs> paid him a bit of money. That's amazing. So speaking about being looked after, they paid him a little wedge yeah. just to help help the transition. I think so. I mean, it's uh, they, were, they were investing in me too. Four-year deals, not really normal over there. In Europe, one-year, two-year deals. So they invested four years in me. I've been a young fella. And then um, obviously they wanted me to be comfortable and my parents were very daunted by it. Or Obviously coming from Australia, going to live in Europe, it's hard language barriers, etc. So, so yeah, Stuart jumped on board. He, he came across with me and, and we were living in Bologna in an apartment together. So it was How fun. good. How That's good. Nice. And so you got that Danish passport, of course. You've signed in Italy. Now, you mentioned this. You've already represented Australia at junior level. So it doesn't take the Danish um, Basketball Federation too long to reach out and sense an opportunity here. Yeah, they were quick. They were hot on it. They were like, <laughs> oh, yeah, so David, because I actually played with a guy, Michael Anderson. It's a very similar name and very similar, or well, not build, to height. He was seven foot tall and, and about probably 125 kilos, so a big, strong guy. He was Danish, obviously, and um, when he got wind of me coming, he was like, oh, you should come play with our national team. We'll, we'll definitely make the Euro qualifiers and probably even get a chance to go to work. And I was like, oh, I've already played with Australia at junior level and we've probably got a bigger chance of winning or getting to Olympics and stuff. So, yeah. so I was like, politely declined, um, much of the, you know, dismay but it was uh it was good and i'm obviously proud of my danish heritage and i've gone up there and i've spent time around some basketballers in denmark and um and i feel a connection there so it was great to be able to go over to europe and experience that side as, well. as was going to be the case right throughout your career that was to come there was early success at bologna individually and collectively the team win the italian cup the lba championship the euro league championship yeah. pretty much everything you could possibly they, win they call that the Grand Slam. So that was like the big slam. Yeah. So we got all three. It was in my second year in Bologna. We had a pretty new team. We had some really big names now. Manu Ginobili is probably the most famous one. Marco Yaric, Big Rashad, Griffith, Antoine Rigodeau, French national team. Like we had six or seven national team players in our one group. And we were a youngish team. And um, oh, Matthias Smodis, big Slovenian superstar as well. We just uh, we went through that year not losing many. We we won everything, like the cup, the thing, and it was just a big, huge party. No one expected that kind of thing, and um, it was a long season. Don't get it twisted. We started in early August or late July, and the last game of the finals I think was June, right near my birthday, June twenty, around there. So talk about a long season, but a very successful one. And obviously, I was still only nineteen, twenty years old then. So. Yeah, great times. The crowds in Europe, we know they can be fanatical, passionate, flares, coins being thrown, storming the court. I mean, you're a pretty laid-back cat, but any hairy moments um, in those uh, early days, especially? Where I was scared, more just eye-opening experiences. Like the old, <laughs> the Italians love throwing toilet paper on the court. So <laughs> right at the jump ball, they'll all of a sudden, all the fans just start hurling toilet paper. Like I could talk a thousand rolls onto the court. and just Why is that? It. Just to delay the game and be like, hey, you know, just to mess with you, I suppose. And then, yeah, they all got chants. They've all got, you know, songs. Your own team has a special chant for you every time. And, um, yeah, like, I mean, I remember the 42 they used to call me Kangarino di Merda, like the kangaroo piece of shit they used to translate. Sorry for the language. But, um, and they'd be chanting that every time you had the free throw line trying to shoot shots or you do something bad. And, you know, they're very passionate, but I didn't mind. I actually, it gives me goosebumps remembering it and stuff like that so it was good for me it really got me up and I loved you know nothing better than playing in a hostile environment and then hitting a fadeaway or a big 
clutch winning shot and then all of a sudden the crowd just goes boom dead yeah. quiet and you're like oh yeah there you go got that so yeah did that a few times and enjoyed all the fire and and, uh, you know, nasty yeah. Italian sort of. Get the juices flowing. I'm not sure if it was after one of the championships, but didn't you have a player that, you know, the, the court was, there was a stampede basically, and you had one player at Bologna who got uh, stuck out there. And when he finally got back to the locker room and you guys were all in there, he only had his jock strap on. He'd yes. been stripped for yes. souvenirs. This is back in the, this is the Grand Slam one when we won the EuroLeague in Bologna. I think you can even go YouTube it. It's, um, <laughs> it's amazing. Within, like, the siren goes and within 10 seconds you see the guys just, Swamped the floor. Me and I was on the bench and me and all the bench guys just ran into the tunnel, got back into the change room before. And then, yeah, it was Marco Yaric. I remember clear as day. He, he comes storming in like two, three minutes later, literally in his, just his basketball shoes with his jock trap on. They'd, they'd savaged him of everything. They were just there. Yeah. It was crazy. They were, but that was a huge thing for us to win the EuroLeague then. The, I remember the city of Bologna was just going nuts. It was in Bologna too. We played a... It was different format then, so we played a best of five series, and it was back in Bologna where you won on game five. So it was a it was an amazing time, and they were just singing, chanting flares well into the night. Like you're talking middle of the morning, they're still driving around on scooters in the middle of Bologna with the flag and chanting songs and stuff like that. It was a it was an epic time. Now, meanwhile, you're on the NBA draft radar, and you're probably always on the NBA draft radar. You're still contracted to Bologna in, in 2002, and then the NBA draft takes place. You're on holiday. I think you're keeping an eye on it. And in the end, the Atlanta Hawks take you. But yep. the decision was made to stay in Europe where you were really coming on, and the NBA was put on the back burner. Why, why was that? Well, I'd just gone through an injury, if I remember right. I had a shoulder surgery around that time, and then I was coming back, and I was getting better, but I was on the radar, definitely, and they called. They didn't really talk to me too much. You get drafted, and they don't really, like, call you. They call your agent. They don't really say too much to you. Oh, yeah, we want you to come in and do stuff, and, and the timing's all off because NBA preseason camps all start in September, October, Europeans July, August. So we were out of whack a bit, and then I was starting to gain traction in Europe, so... I think right around like a year later, I started to get some footing in Siena, started playing some really good basketball. We won the championship. I was MVP. Yep. Then I went on to sign a massive deal with Seska Moscow. So it was like I was going to earn way more than I was earning in the NBA minimum in Europe. So I was like, oh, I'm buggered. I'm, you know, I'm economical kind of guy. I'm smart. I'm not too silly. So I'm like, no, nah, I'm going to earn good money and, and keep playing and winning championships over here. So and it kept coming about. And it was just one of those things like every time I'd, get a taste they'd want to bring me over. I was like, oh, and someone would offer me something more. So I was like, well, I can't make it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and happen. I'm glad you mentioned Seska Moscow because that's a fascinating chapter in your career. And, I mean, it's hard to take, you know, quote-unquote minimum chips in Atlanta with no guarantees, mind you, yes. when you've got Moscow calling with for pretty yeah, big bucks. With, yeah, massive million-dollar million dollar deal. So, yeah, it, it was literally that. And the timing of it was all out of whack, like I said. Like, it will be a matter of me going into preseason camp to earn a spot and maybe get minimum in turn of taking a $7 million deal with Russian team and chance to win everything and blah, blah, blah. So, What was Moscow like? Moscow is pretty crazy. Very cold. Very yeah, cold. Very cold. So, they gave you a driver, didn't they, and everything? They look after you. Yeah, well, I mean, the team didn't give us a driver. I got a driver because a lot of their teammates, the Americans as well, they all get drivers because um, Moscow is a crazy city and the snow and you need a translator and – Cops are on every corner trying to pull you over for doing the wrong thing. So it actually worked out well. So, yes, I had a driver, Sergey. He was a very hearty Russian bloke and, <laughs> and loved, uh, loved to chat and to drive fast too, even in the snow. I think he scared a lot of my relatives off because <laughs> I'm quite good on driving and I don't mind 
going a bit fast in the in the snow and stuff. But yeah, a lot of my brothers and stuff are like, Sergey, slow down, slow down. And I'm just like, yeah, Sergey, come on. Jeez, but a driver, a driver named Sergey in Moscow is a long way from Franger. Yes, exactly, it is. But um, yeah, very good times. And Moscow is a, it's a crazy city. It's uh, some people described it to me as like Miami, New York, and LA all rolled into one. Expensive so, too. Yeah, very expensive. So some of the restaurants there, yeah, you can go out and eat. You have to pay more, but. In my mind, when I signed there, I knew Moscow would be a step up in terms of thing, but the salary got stepped up. So it was all like, you know, going up in the right direction. And, and to, to be honest, the Moscow, Seska Moscow is probably the most professional team outside of the NBA in terms of how they looked after you with the apartments, with the, um, with the cars, with their, their flying, they fly charters everywhere, EuroLeague. But with that comes a very high demand to win and pressure. So... It was one of those things. It was a great team to play for. I was very successful there. I think we bought their first EuroLeague championship for ages in 2006 after bombing out in 2005, the year before, in Moscow. That was a real disappointment for them. They changed everything except for me and a few other players. But um, Don't gloss over your all, um, your all EuroLeague first team appearance as well in 05. So the was, personal so, stuff kept coming. Yeah, so I was, I was playing really well that year. So that's why they kept me on board. Um, but yeah, it was a very successful time in Moscow. Obviously we, uh, we won the Russian league four times. We won the Russian cup. I think it was three or four times. So it was, um, it was a great team to be around and very successful time, but yeah, very cold place to live, but, um, very nice. And the injury. So dislocated ankle there and a fractured fibula. Was it ever career threatening? Like some might've said at the time? Well, yes, I believe it was. In my mind, I was never like going to say I was laying down and saying, oh, this is it kind of thing. But I came back and I was, I was fortunate enough. Seska were very, you know, supportive. They said, yeah, have the surgery where you feel comfortable, blah, blah, blah. And it was kind of like a football injury. When I spoke to David Young, who did the surgery, he was like, yeah, this is a typical footy injury. You spike your foot and you snap your tibia around your ankle and you rupture everything around it pretty much. And I was like, oh, okay. And knowing AFL and, you know, physios and things in Australia where we're world, you know, world leaders. So I came back and had the surgery here and I was around family too for the support part. Um, it was hard. I was thinking, yeah, part of me was saying, oh, geez, are you going to come back from this? But I had great support. My trainer, Bowden, my other trainer, Dominic Trimboli, got me in the pool, running, doing things on the pool work just to get me back moving, getting everything, the biomechanics going again. And then my weights guy, Bruce Gray, got me strong again and it all ticked in and I was actually back on the court in, I think it was August, September, yeah. after breaking it on Australia Day in Real Madrid in the EuroLeague games. So Amazing. It was uh, it was half, and come to find it later on, it's not till now that Bowden, my trainer, told me, oh, actually, Sesco, the coach and everyone, pulled him aside and said, oh, we never thought David would be back. Like We were, we were going to honour his contract, obviously, which is probably unheard of in Europe, but we didn't think he'd get back to the high level that he was at and you know, really given Bowden a pat on the back and saying, good job, because um, yeah, you got me back to the court and I'll raise the bar again. You did indeed. We're talking to David Anderson on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Up next, we'll get David's recollections of his other basketball life, that one spent in green and gold. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives.
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And former basketballer David Anderson has been our guest today. So, David, I guess the best city, the most fun you had? Now, no offence to, to Moscow, but, gee, Barcelona must have been an unbelievably good lifestyle. I love it, and I love the way you said it very yep. much, Barcelona. Bartha. It's very true. No, it's a great city. It's very international and probably, yeah, one of the, the only ones that could have lured me away from a very lucrative contract in Seska. I turned down a lot of money to go to Barcelona, um, partly because of the weather was a lot better and to just, uh, yeah, great city, great place to be. Now, the, I don't know about Moscow, but the only problem with Spain is that everything happens later, David. The dinner is late, the bed is late, and over there your games were late, weren't they? What time was tip-off on some of these? Well, Larry, you're talking about 9, 9.30 at night game tip-off. So, you know, you don't finish till 11, 11.30 at night time and, and um, yeah, everything is pushed back and if you want to go out to dinner at 7 o'clock then you, you're dreaming the chef's not even in, in the kitchen. So, <laughs> right. Did I, I mentioned you were pretty laid back. Did you, I'm assuming you did master the Spanish way of life. Did you Did you master the siesta? Oh, definitely. I mastered the siesta back when I was in Frankston. So <laughs> I'm a big fan of uh, siestering and um, definitely fit it into the European way of life in that sense. So, but no, it was it's good. Uh, the, I do really like the culture of the Spanish way. They they live, you know, what do they say? They they work to live, not live to work. So it's everything's mañana. And for those unfamiliar with the city, there, the, the they are home, obviously, to one of the biggest footballing clubs in the world, uh, FC Barcelona. So. They share it basically. You're not hand in glove, but you share a lot, didn't you? Yeah, we share a lot. We share Camp Nou, so that's the, where the big stadium is, and and um, our basketball stadium's right there. It's you know, and uh, obviously the management, the football team is obviously world renowned and and one of the best, and they kind of float the basketball team because uh, obviously we are one of the Premier Euro leagues, and it's similar similar layout to Real Madrid, so. Yeah, we share a lot of things and we travel around and we were fortunate enough actually to, to get on the planes with the guys one time. So Shared a flight. Yes, we got back from, um, it was a tournament or something in Real Madrid and they were playing Real Madrid as well. So the the management just told us, oh yeah, we're about to jump on a plane this time instead of catching the train. We're going with the football team. It was like, oh, okay. So there we go. We we get to uh, fly with the big boys. So I'm assuming though, but you guys being the big boys would be up the front with all the leg room. <laughs> no, no, none of that. I mean, Little messy, four foot nothing. He, he had the, definitely had a lot of space around him. So, but um, no, they get, definitely get the front and uh, it was good, but we intermingled a bit and we had some good laughs and stuff like that. I got to meet Messi. He's, a, he's not the tallest of guys, but um, it was still, it was fun to say hello and, and we had a lot of tall guys, obviously. And but uh, yeah, it was it was great to share share a flight with him, have a bit of a chat. Fantastic! That was a golden era for for that football club. They had Messi, Xavi, Piquet, uh, Danny Alves, Iniesta. The list goes on and on. Right. So with this, were you, were you happy to let the NBA slide, perhaps forever? You know, with the relatively big Euro money, you treated well. The timing was never right, or was the NBA always going to be an itch that you were going to scratch at some point? I think as a kid. You once wrote, as a lot of us did, on your wardrobe in big black texter yeah. that one day you were going to play did. in the NBA. I remember it. I do remember it. I can envisage the exact thing. It was like a little wardrobe thing. And Mum wouldn't have been happy it. with that. Uh, not too much. Well, she should be now because it's <laughs> <laughs> played off. <laughs> it has indeed. And I left the country off because you, you, you obviously went to Houston, but you played in Canada for Toronto as well yes. and the Hornets, New Orleans, you played for. Back to New Orleans. Yeah. But yeah, so the NBA dream, getting back to that when I was in Barcelona, I didn't know what was going to happen because I was actually playing really good basketball with Barcelona and probably did one of my best Final Four performances. I think I averaged over 20 points in the two games at the Final Four. Unfortunately, we lost in the semi-final to my old team, Seska. 
But, um, yeah, I was in great form, and then we went on to win the Spanish League that year with Barcelona. And um, that's when my agent worked some magic, and the Houston Rockets came to the table with an offer for three years to go over there. They got the rights off Atlanta for something. I don't know what they traded for. And, um, yeah, they offered me – I mean, it wasn't as much as I was getting paid in Barcelona. I still took a hit financially to go there, but I was – it was always on my mind to go, you know, tick that box, play in the NBA – test myself against the best in the world. Mm. So I said, screw it, I'm going to take a hit financially, even though Barcelona was still, <laughs> again, trying to raise my salary and say, stay here, we want you to stay, we're going to win EuroLeague next year <laughs> among the Spanish league. And I was like, nah, I've really got to do this, I've got to tick this box. So yeah, so yeah I packed my bags and, and uh, off we go to America. Off to Broadway. And you had some great moments there. Toughest Definitely. opponent? Who'd you come up against that you can you can tell your grandkids about that uh, you rub shoulders with? Oh, I mean the big boys. Like you always talk about playing against guys like Shaq. I mean he was still you know he was slowing down a bit then, but he was a moving mountain. And then obviously you know the guys like Kevin Garnett. I mean some of the guys Zach Randolph. You know the list goes on. There's, Huge names. It's every yeah. night you play against one guy, and then you're like, oh shit, now I've got to play against this guy tomorrow night. And and even when you have a good game, it's you know it's just such a moving wheel. You've got to just keep back at it. So. The, good times. Amazing. The Green and Gold, Athens 04, Beijing 08, London 2012, Rio 2016 was bitterly disappointing. But we touched on this earlier, so let's boomerang back. The special yeah. bond in the Olympic team that we, as outsiders, we hear a lot about. But can you let us in a bit on the chemistry and what made pulling on the Green and Gold such a special thing? Well, it's just, you know, obviously the the brother brotherhood you get from it. It's No one's there for, obviously, money or what this kind of thing. And and you kind of you, you it's embedded in you at a young age because you play with your junior teams and stuff like that. But then the boomers, it's you go away on tours, you're having fun, you know, obviously, and then you're you're slamming up against all these other European teams and American teams, and you're trying to obviously do the best for your team, for your national. And um, yeah, obviously, we had a chip on our shoulder. We were trying to get there. I remember Athens; we were very underrated and stuff like that, and kind of a new look team with mm. Gorgian because there was a bit of a, a lull left after Sydney, all the old dogs left and there wasn't many brought along. We had some fresh faces coming through. Obviously, I was a part of that. Then Beijing, we started to get a bit of ground, you know, we're starting to get a bit better. And then London took another step forward. Paddy was growing. These young kids that were 18, we were grooming them into a, to the culture and everything like that. And things were really taking, taking head then. And, and that's when we gained traction and the brotherhood really grew a lot more. You could probably tell this story with a lot of Olympic sports, but the I guess the development of the of how it all works, the money involved, the professionalism, because compared to those early days when you're on the road with the Aussie setup, I mean, you, you're washing uniforms in bathtubs. And, yeah, that's exactly right. So I remember like when it, when we started up pre-Athens Olympics, it was like literally they'd give you some soap and be like, oh, can you wash your training uniform in your bathtub and stuff like that? And I was like, come on, man, we're professional athletes. Surely these can't be the standard. You've come from you know, Moscow. Got, and you, yeah, you got to do this. So. It was like you, that's where we brought it along, and that was part of the growing of the boomers culture as well. Is 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 relaying that onto the management, the admin, and being like, no, we want to make this professional. If we want to be the best, we've got to have standards. And so that was part of my thing was getting that going, and and it was great. Even as fast forwarding towards 2015, we brought in the players' association with Jacob Holmes, and he was great at instrumental in in just making it all professional. And that's part of the footprint now. That's progressed on to guys now when they go on the road it's it's not that hard for them it's a lot better i mean it's still hard being away you're still in the slog but you're getting looked after and, and making putting in the best way to be successful so that's what it's all about 
Whereas previously, it was probably a bit of a slog and it was hard work, but that kind of bonded us a bit more too. Yeah. Guys, you're in a tiny little shitty European room with two single beds with like, you know, half a foot between you and you're sleeping with some other big guy like Nature Y. I mean, it's not easy. Your even, legs hanging out yeah, over there. Literally, end. it's not too easy. But no, we we had fun like that and guys were good and everyone got along and usually you shared drinks and had good times when you were away on tour. So, I mean, it's, it's part of give and take, so... Mm. And definitely the culture is, has progressed and the professionalism of the Boomer program has gotten a lot better. And life has a funny way of working out. So after nearly two decades overseas, you returned to the NBL. And not just returning, but they made you captain of Melbourne United straight off the bat. And in your second season back, United wins the title. And you become, at the ripe old age of 37, uh, David, yeah. the oldest player to win his first NBL championship. A unique piece of trivia yeah. for a unique journey, it must yeah. be said. It was crazy. It was kind of the feather in or cherry on the top of the cake, or whatever you want to call it. Um, it was, um, yeah, it was amazing. I came back. I remember pre-Rio, I signed up with the team and, and talked about coming back because it was always on my radar to, to finish in Australia and, and cushion the blow into retirement mm. by being, being at home around friends and family that have watched me or travelled with me around the world and do something in Australia because the NBL was coming back. Larry Kessman just had bought it, I think, two or three years prior and, and it was starting to make a bit of impact. And I could see that it was gaining traction in Australia. And Rio really put the national team on the spotlight, you know. So it was all these things were working. And to come back and, and win a championship, I did promise it to Larry and Vince at the time. I said, listen, I am the talisman. I will get you a championship. <laughs> Whether or not I'm like performing up to their standard, what they think I should be scoring and whatnot. But I'll do the things around the team and try and make sure everyone's glued together and bonded and, and we've got a good culture that, that we can win a championship. And, and I was fortunate enough to be a part of that. And we had good teammates and, and the results speak for itself. So it was great to, to share one at home in Melbourne. was definitely special. You mentioned the cushioning the blow into retirement, but it kept going because you returned to the Hawks, but by early 21, it looked like you'd finally pulled the pin. So you go back to where it all started, the Frankston Blues, which was nice. Yes. And then unfortunately back at United, Jack White goes down with injury and they need a big man. Who are they going to call? <laughs> yes, they gave me a, a big yell. <laughs> Dean calls me up on a Friday night and says, oh, Dave, we've got an injury replacement spot if you're... If you want to get back on board, you know, we're making a push for this championship. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, can you give me a little bit of time? I've got to discuss it with the missus and, and see about things. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, we just need an answer by now. Now. <laughs> I was like, you got to suit up tomorrow if you want to be a part of it. And I was like, oh, geez, thanks for giving me a warning. But, yeah, that's how the basketball world works. It literally, it, it is, you've got to be very flexible in the basketball world to be successful because – Things happen like that, and you've just got to go and run with the opportunities. So and they, they win I, the title. A symbolic, a symbolic end. Yeah, it was great. So I, I got a good chance to hang out with my good friend Chris and, and Jock and give all the guys little words of wisdom here and there. And I was always ready and itching. And, um, yeah, it was a great little journey, even though we got a two-day road trip and ended up being about six weeks away from home and it wasn't very good for the family. But, <laughs> no. but um, yeah, it was great times and obviously a great way to, to finish a, a great career. David Anderson, thanks so much for donating your time today. I mean, what a career you've had. Absolutely incredible. I mean, you can enjoy this next phase of your life satisfied that you have given everything you had in a 23-year journey across the globe. And the fact that you represented your country with so much pride along the way enhanced your contribution to the game. So well done on all you achieved. Best of luck for the future. And Thank thanks you. a lot for joining us. Thanks a lot, Sam. And thanks a lot for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.
Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semi finals, all thanks to McDonald's. Mackers, together and loving it. TNCs apply.